God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Amen. So I, um, I say those words a lot. Uh, not because I'm just looking to be clever or to have some weird obsession with attention-seeking or self-pity, as nice as that is, uh, nor is it the sum of all that I am. I say it because it's true of me. And in doing so, I'm regularly reminded of the shiny fruit of confidence and bravado I always found in alcohol. I was looking for confidence, for peace from anxiety, for respite from an ADD-riddled brain, and I found it in the low-hanging fruit of alcohol, my, for, my forbidden fruit of misplaced affections. And so today, I wax vulnerable with you people, dovetailing my personal story of addiction and recovery with help from this well-known garden narrative just read for us by my wife. But stories need context, and that's certainly true here. See, God has been in this flurry of creative activity, literally speaking the world into being. But two different Hebrew words are used to describe God's activity in Genesis 1 and 2. Bara, which means coming into being or something from nothing. Then, when creation is basically complete, a different word is introduced. It's the word yiser, which means fashioned or formed. And it describes the actions of an artist, a sculptor, or a potter. Everything other than man and woman was spoken into being. We, by contrast, are molded. Hebrew is a really creative and highly symbolic language. It loves wordplay. For example, the word Adam, I'm sure we've all heard that word, means man. The word for ground is Adama. See, we really are stardust, aren't we? <laughs> all kidding aside, we are made of the same raw materials as the rest of the world. We are one with it, intimately tied to the entire cosmos. In a very real sense, without God and without our world, we would not exist. So humans weren't spoken into being. We were lovingly shaped by God from pre-existing materials that were spoken into existence. So this rather remarkable setup ought to provide a ready backdrop against which we can look at a weird command of God. To Adam, Alone, as it would appear, God says the following, And the Lord God commanded the man, You may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall die. You know, I have to say, for many years I was deeply troubled by what seemed to me an ill-considered ultimatum, almost a dare on God's part. God, to me, felt like was drawing a line in the sand that to our contemporary ears felt a little bit like telling a room full of middle school boys not to think about sex for 10 minutes. Yeah, like that's going to happen. It's a command that was doomed to fail. Let's remember, however, just how far removed we are 
from the Adam of the garden. For Adam, everything was absolutely new. He's completely innocent. He's unafraid with this wide-eyed curiosity like that of a sophisticated child. But in the interest of kind of exploring the notion of fixation, obsession for a moment, let's consider the event with the apple. Has it not fascinated you, as it has me, that given what Adam already enjoyed in this blissful existence with God in paradise, that he could ever be tempted to ruin it with such a simple act of defiance? And yet, isn't this the very foundation of the addictive mind? To reach for the forbidden or easy in pursuit of the unknown benefits thereof. Ask any alcoholic why they drink, and you'll never get a sane answer. Did you drink because you felt sad? Yup. Did you drink because you were happy? Yup. Did you drink to calm your nerves? Yup. Did you drink to give you some nerve? Yup. The answer is always yup, yup, absolutely. And so we're left with this aching question, why? Why? Hold that thought. It was 2001, and I had answered a call as worship and music director at an historic Baptist church linked to a top-tier American college. In order to do that, we had to leave behind a successful four-year ministry at a large Canadian Willow Creek Association church of 2,500 who adored us for a small American, highly educated, anti-establishment intelligentsia church in small-town Oregon that kind of didn't. <laughs> so Ray, my wife, left behind a job she dearly loved to follow me to this call. I left a job I both loved and hated, but that had provided us stability, notoriety, and many friends our age also with young children. I had grown hungry uh, for richer fare, thirsty for cooler streams. We left behind the country of our childhood to become immigrants in another one and at the worst possible time. Shortly after arriving, I remember where I was, I'm sure you all do too, I was standing at Cornerstone Coffee and watched airplanes fly into New York's Twin Towers and the Pentagon, leaving a country's self-confidence in tatters along with any hope of our easy transition to trade our religious worker visa for permanent residency, which would allow us to come and go at will. That's an important detail because months after arriving, we discovered that Ray's dad's cancer had returned and his wife's son, our stepbrother, who was a police officer in Edmonton, Alberta, had broken his neck in a freak accident and was left a quadriplegic. But because of our immigration status, we couldn't leave the country to attend to these disasters. We were stuck. The church we'd left behind had given us a standing ovation on our last Sunday. After my first Sunday at the new church, I received threats and hate mail. Our marriage and family were stretched to the breaking point. Thursday night, mid-October 2003, choir practice. 
Afterward, one of my choir sopranos followed me back to my office. Normally a very diminutive and quiet person, she stood framed in my doorway, literally trembling with rage. What the hell was that, she croaked. You made no sense tonight. You can barely stand. Then she asked me a question I would not have been ready to answer honestly before that night. You've been drinking, haven't you? I'm sorry, this story never gets easier to tell. My desperation had grown to fever pitch by that time. Yes, I've been drinking, I answered. She finished with one final chilling question. Will you tell Ray or shall I? I knew I was at a crossroads. I'd been discovered. I'd been found out. My back was against the wall. What response could I offer? We had only just moved to Oregon from Canada not long before, and my addiction with it had ripened well. In fact, it was rotting. I told her that I would tell Ray. Now, in the madness typical of alcoholism, I sat still longer in my office, thinking it would help me sober up enough to regain my composure and face Ray. Finally, I began the 20-minute homeward stumble, but what I didn't know was that when I hadn't returned home from choir rehearsal at my normal time, she had grown worried and had gone out with our van on a reconnaissance mission hunting for her missing husband. She found me stumbling down the street. She pulled over, opened the passenger door, and asked the question that to that point I had never answered honestly. You're an alcoholic, aren't you? Knowing well the answer, I replied, descending into tears, yes, I'm an alcoholic. I can't stop, and crawled into the passenger seat. A brief interjection to my story. This is the point where a person reaches the first of the 12 steps of AA. I admitted I was powerless over alcohol, that my life had become unmanageable. From the standpoint, standpoint of all good Christian spirituality, it is also the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. God, I got nothing. I got nothing. It is a place of surrender, of acquiescence, of repentance, metanoia. I continue. Ray was beside herself with grief, anger, and confusion. I slept in our camper that night, and the next morning met with the pastor, my boss, my choir soprano's husband, with whom I was really good friends, and the person who would become my first sponsor. Together, they decided that I could keep my job only if I remained visibly and provably sober, regularly attended AA, met with my sponsor, and entered counseling. They even decided not to alert the church board and to keep it between this original small group of the pastor and two others. That was a stroke for me of magnanimity on their part. The years that followed have been the best and the worst of our married lives. But what I was immediately confronted with were two profound realities. One, I was a desperate and helpless soul in need of restoration. And two, there could be no other life for me but a sober one. 
And except for a brief time in 2016, I've remained sober ever since. So let's connect some dots. In my humble opinion, I think sometimes we reach some erroneous theological conclusions about this Genesis 3 narrative, often referred to as the fall of man passage. Pride has been suggested as its root cause, but I believe pride is more the result, not the impetus, of what's going on in the garden. When someone reaches for forbidden fruit, it doesn't always mean pride is at root. Our theological forebears use this fancy word, concupiscence. Hmm? There's a 50-pointer in Scrabble. <laughs> Say it with me, concupiscence. Oh, that is so sexy. That's a fancy word to describe a, a dissatisfaction with what is in pursuit of something one believes to be still better. An idea begins to grow um, that there is something better yet still to come. Friends, since coming out as a recovering alcoholic, even publishing that story in the Covenant Companion, it's remarkable how much that has opened the floodgates. I'll return to that in just a second. So, the serpent knew what was going on. Did God really say, surely you won't die? I mean, come on, really? Seriously? We gradually entertain these thoughts and reach for whatever fruit that might be for us. So what begins as fixation becomes attachment, which becomes addiction, which leads to spiritual prison, synonymous in this, pas in, in this passage with death. The distancing from the rigors of reality and a fog of sweet inebriation promised me power, confidence, swagger, until it started killing me like a slow-moving serpent wrapping itself around my spiritual windpipe. A grasp for something good that might make things even better. Not so much pride, what I call misplaced affection. Friends, addictions become our beautiful prison. At the beginning of every first drink, every illicit sexual liaison, every next bet, every first hit, every sweet lie, comes a relief from fear, from anxiety, from depression, and self-doubt. But instead of feeding one's deepest need for union and connection and wholeness, it only offers momentary relief and the euphoria of a forbidden fruit grasped effortlessly from the nearest available tree. I have to say, my work among the recovery community has come as a little bit of a surprise to me. I hadn't really considered it seriously as an area of ministry, really more a place to kind of plunk myself down because, after all, these are my peeps. These are my people. But God uses us best where we have lived most. And scar tissue more than book study makes for better disciples. As a writer, I'm constantly encouraged to write what I know. 
I believe the same is true for kingdom builders. Serve first from where you have lived. And so I'd mentioned earlier about coming out as a recovering alcoholic. It's writ large in the covenant companion. It's like everyone seems to know. But professional Christians aren't supposed to have big ticket problems. We're all fixed up in helping others with their big ticket problems, right? Hmm. Well, my coming out story has emboldened many others to reach out to me. Clandestine texts, quiet emails, hidden Facebook messages, all outlining their own personal struggles with substance abuse. Now, I know for a fact that most of you in this very room either wrestle with substance abuse or know someone who does. I promise you. Trust me, this ministry has been easy to find. In fact, it has found me, and it's where I do some of my most challenging but satisfying ministry. So let me try and wrap this up a bit. In an ill-advised conversation with an unlikely woman at a well in the heat of a Middle Eastern afternoon, Jesus stirs a woman's interest with his answer to her question by saying, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus is teaching me how to drink. He's good at it. He's a glutton and a drunkard, remember? Look it up. It's in the Bible. He is teaching me, all of us, how to redirect our yearnings, our misplaced affections, into his own bosom. When forbidden fruit avails itself, he gives us tools and a roadmap how to satisfy our deepest longings. American psychologist Gerald May, famous for his work among alcoholics and addicts, says the following. I am convinced that all human beings have an inborn desire for God. Whether we are consciously religious or not, this desire is our deepest longing and our most precious treasure. It is the origin of our highest hopes and most noble dreams. Dear friends, this is exactly where God has called me to serve. As I'm learning to be creative in adopting and nurturing my own Christian life, reorienting it towards sobriety. I'm calling others there with me. I am learning to release misplaced affections, trust my higher power, whom I call Jesus, to guide me toward living water. Thanks to the grace of God, the fellowship of others like me, many tears, and still more prayers, I can say, hi, I'm Rob, and I'm a recovering alcoholic. But I am a heavy drinker, just from a better bottle. Thanks be to God. Friends, I know for a fact, I mentioned this earlier, 
every single person here is either struggling with some kind of misplaced affection, something. There is something that for you is concupiscence. It helps you in the immediate, but it is wrapping itself around your spiritual windpipe and choking you. As we sing this song again, Come to the Well, I invite you through these words, they're meant to be uh, a gathering, but a prayer. Let this song be for all of us an acquiescence to the wooing of the Spirit who would call us out and away from that which is seeking to kill us. It feels good at the moment, but it's actually killing us. These are the moments that we can surrender this in an act of loving acquiescence to God, of repentance, metanoia. This time is ours to share together. But this time, I'm going to invite our musicians up, and they're going to join me as we sing this song together again. But let it be for us a prayer of surrender to God. Come to the well. Stay here with me, stay here. 